Good evening, one and all. It's good to see you. Glad that you're here. Trust you had a good Mother's Day and were able to enjoy it, relax a little bit. And tonight you get to come back and think hard as we look at some issues regarding truth. It's good to see so many here, but there are a number of our people that are usually here that aren't here tonight, visiting, etc. And uh, I've mixed emotions about that, because if you miss a couple of nights of this, you're really going to be lost. But uh, hopefully we can keep people on the, the same page. We'll review. I uh, was asked a few questions by uh, some people, uh, and so I'd like to I'll respond publicly to those questions because they were good questions. And if you have questions, uh, please interact with me. I've had a few people say, can't we have a question and answer time? And maybe we'll do that uh, uh, at length. Maybe even tonight, if there's time, uh, we'll give you an opportunity to, to ask some questions that we can think about. But uh, let me go to the questions that I was asked. Uh, postmodernism by its very definition, uh, follows modernism. That's what post-modern, after modern. So it's the modernist period followed by the post-modern period. So when did that begin? Well, of course, it's tough to talk about any movement exactly when it begins, but uh, most people look at the 1940s as being a time in which uh, postmodern thought began to emerge in a demonstrable way. That's because of postmodern philosophers that were writing in the 40s and 50s. There wasn't much being written in that particular train of thought before that. So that's generally the dates that we think of, of it as it's starting. Uh, the question then came, is there an overlap? There's a huge, huge Overlap between modernism and postmodernism. Modernism followed the Enlightenment. Uh, we've been in a modernist era for a couple hundred years. And so that has really been ingrained into our spirit. And it's going to take a long time for postmodernism to really filter its way through all of our culture, uh, all of our society. Uh, it originated in Europe, in uh, France in particular. And so today, uh, France is known as a post-modern uh, uh, country. If you talk to our missionaries, uh, they'll always be, uh, the Riddells, etc., are always going to be talking about postmodernism because it is the way of thinking in France. It is not the way of thinking in the United States as of yet. Uh, it has affected our institutions, our uh, colleges and universities, uh, more than it has affected uh, our society at large, especially the higher you go in, in education, doctoral level, a master's level. So at the doctor level, it's affected it a great deal. At a master's level, less. At a bachelor's level, still less. High school, still less. And it has a trickle-down effect. As people study, as they are trained, as they are exposed, then they teach others, and they're trained and they're exposed. So we're at a level right now that those people that have been steeped and trained in postmodernism uh, are uh, 
teaching in the universities, and it will it will trickle down over over time. Um, trying to think where I was going to go with that as well. Um, oh, uh, when we think about uh, Europe being affected uh, by postmodernism, uh, certainly England has been greatly affected by postmodernism, and especially as you think of Cambridge and Oxford. And so, as people have come out of Cambridge and Oxford, uh, it has really then infiltrated our uh, American universities. Uh, Oxford is considered to be the place to have a doctor of theology from. Uh, it is supposed to be the place where the greatest theological thinking is going on. And so, our seminaries have a lot of postmodern influence because they have a lot of professors that have come out of uh, Oxford in their theology departments. And I mentioned to you that one great example of postmodern thinking is President Clinton. President Clinton uh, is a graduate of Oxford. So, uh, give you a sense of how postmodernism spreads. Last week, there, were, there was a little bit of material that I didn't get to finish. So, I'm going to do that tonight. And uh, I didn't reduplicate that for you. But let me just go over these conclusions. So, how is truth known and what degree can it be known? Uh, that is the central element to the whole postmodern debate. How is truth known in modernism? In modernism, truth is objective and discovered. There is the expectation that one day in this life will arrive at all truth. So modernists are optimistic and favorable concerning the truth. The idea of truth is a good thing. How is truth known in postmodernism? In postmodernism, truth is subjective and projected upon reality. All searches for truth are tainted. Uh, that there really isn't a sincere search for truth. That, that truth is not about quote unquote truth. Uh, truth is about power. In postmodernism. And people hide behind the claims of truth in order to gain power. So that the, the whole idea of proclaiming, I have the truth, is simply a way of seeking to dominate other people. Those that are claiming to have the truth want to dominate those that they see as not having the truth. So in postmodernism, truth is a negative concept. It is uh, intolerant. It is dictatorial. It is enslaving. It is bad news in postmodernism to be talking about truth. It's oppressive. It's evil. And as I said last week, that the greatest areas of influence in postmodernism are in the areas of history and in the languages. And so, one example of this whole debate is uh, in the issue of eubonics. We've have you heard about eubonics? Eubonics is um, black speech uh, that would be heard in the inner city. Their euphemisms, uh, their grammar, uh, their particular way of speaking is referred to as eubonics. Well, there's a lot of debate going on as to whether or not we should try to change black culture and get them to speak like white people speak? Uh, should they be using the kind of vernacular that is uh, used in, uh, among white people? Uh, we have a 
church plant that is taking place in the Harrisburg area. It's a multicultural church plant. And the pastor from that church uh, was at annual conference. And uh, he was a riot. He got up and, and, uh, and addressed annual conference and said how uh, much out of his element he felt in this particular proceeding. It's all done by Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, it's uh, carried on in a very uh, structured atmosphere, a lot of dignity. You stand up and you address the uh, chairman, his brother moderator, and uh, he said, you know, that's foreign to him. He said uh, he feels much more comfortable with Yohomi than he does uh, brother moderator. Well, those kinds of things, you know, Yohomi, and, and that would be eubonics. So, there would be people that would argue that the desire to make people speak English the way we speak is a way of putting down blacks. It's a way of, of keeping them back. It's a way of denying their abilities. So that the whole testing program for um, college boards, uh, the kinds of things that, that, that you need to show yourself proficient in order to get into college, uh, are seen as being rigged towards those that have a white Anglo-Saxon background. And that it doesn't really measure intelligence, but it measures your environment. It measures the things that you've been exposed to. So is that right? And so the question about college boards begins to arise. Those, those are some of the kinds of effects that are being talked about and why it is seen as being uh, oppressive. So tonight I want us to look at the source of truth in Christianity. Now we're to your handout. We're looking at a biblical philosophical response to postmodernism. The Bible addresses both modernist and postmodernist issues. They are different. And the one thing that I want to get to tonight, uh, uh, I, I will say uh, tonight, is that in, in Christianity, truth is seen as liberating. In John 8, 32, you should know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's not oppressive, but it's liberating. It's freeing. It is helpful. It is not oppressive at all. That's not the intent of the way in which we should handle truth. So, number one, a biblical philosophical response to postmodernism. What if truth is not subjective but objective? What if truth is not hopelessly dependent upon our limited perceptions? Remember what postmodernism teaches from one of our handouts. Immanuel Kant, in the Critique of Pure Reason, argued for a position that has become an axiom of postmodernism. He argued that self does not so much discover what is objectively out there in the world, but projects order upon uh, the world. B. What if the author of the scripture interpreted his selection of words for us? Remember what postmodernism teaches. Postmodernism, a postmodern deconstruction boldly argues that there is no escape from the hermeneutical circle, none whatsoever. As for words, not only is their meaning constrained by other words, structuralism, but words are viciously self-limiting. In the strongest form of deconstruction, not only is all meaning bound up in Intrigably with the knower rather than with the text, but words themselves never have reference other than other words. I used the example of President Clinton in his trial. And uh, 
Was he ever alone with Monica Lewinsky? It depends on what you mean by the word alone. And you have to know what President Clinton meant by that word. And so how can you know what he meant? How can you get into his head? And the idea is that you, that truth is limited because you can't get into somebody else's head. See, the Bible makes a series of assertions to help us understand that God's truth is not discovered simply by human reason. This stands in opposition to modernism. Now, this isn't on my handout, but I thought I ought to give this uh, background and a disclaimer, if you will. If you think about Revelation, that which we can know of God, theologically it's divided into two groups. It's divided into what's referred to as general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is that which can be known about God from creation. By looking at this universe, by looking at the stars, by looking at uh, all of creation. And the Bible teaches us that we should, by looking at creation, understand two things. That there is a God. That we should be able to understand and come to the conclusion that somebody had to make this. And there is limited knowledge that we can know about God. Psalm 119, excuse me, not Psalm 119, Psalm 19, uh, states, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firm that showeth forth his, his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, night unto night showeth forth knowledge. So, in that psalm, it's like the heavens are speaking. And they're saying to you, there's a God. By looking at this created universe, you ought to be able to see that there's a God. And you ought to be able to know something about Him. Not a lot, but you should know that He's powerful. That it took somebody with an incredible amount of power to make what is made. You should know that He's wise. It took somebody with a tremendous amount of wisdom to make what is, is, uh, is made. So, there are a few things that we can know about God from creation. But they are extremely limited. What we can know about God by looking at creation is extremely, extremely limited. But we can know that He exists. We can know He's powerful. And we can know that He's wise. Uh, it should not surprise us that in the modernist era, in the scientific era, the greatest battle that has been raged for the Christian is over creationism. And should it be taught in the public school? Uh, that has been the battleground for the Christian in science. What about the teaching of creationism? Interestingly enough, in postmodernism, there is much more of a willingness to accept the teaching of creationism. And there is even a movement in postmodern circles that, that, that should be included uh, in the whole dialogue of uh, evolution and that it should be taught in public schools. That's, that's a rather fascinating uh, turn of events. Small voice, 
but it's growing and it's growing more as postmodernism grows. Uh, one other area that might be helpful to you is that in our country, an awful lot of what is the debate between conservatives and liberals in actuality is a debate between modernism and postmodernism. Uh, what we think of liberals uh, oftentimes are coming from much more of a postmodern mindset and conservatives are coming much more from a modernist concept. But if you look at C, the Bible makes a series of assertions to help us understand that God's truth is not discovered simply by human reasons. Remember that modernists taught that it was through the scientific method, through observation, you are going to look at things and develop an hypothesis, test it, try it, and arrive at the truth. But God's truth is not discovered in that way. Notice what the scripture says about it. First, God's truth is not discovered by human experience. 1 Corinthians 2.9 However, as it is written, no eye has seen. It's talking about the truths that are contained in the word of God. The first is no eye has seen. It's not observable. You aren't going to come to the conclusions about God. You're not going to come to the conclusions about salvation. You're not going to come to the conclusions that we as Christians hold by observing anything in nature. Nature is not going to lead you to that conclusion. It'll lead you to the fact that there's a God and He's powerful and He's wise, but it certainly isn't going to lead you to the conclusion that He sent His Son and that He died on the cross for our sins. You're never going to get that by looking at the stars. Eye is not seen. Two, Truth is not discovered by consulting great philosophers. However, it is written, no eye is seen, nor ear is heard. So, it isn't a matter of passing down the collective wisdom of the ages. Uh, so the psalmist David said, I am more understanding than all my teachers. And that's what is meant by that in that psalm. That, that David, through the revelation that God gave him, knew more than all the wise men that were there to counsel him that didn't know God. Uh, it isn't derived at by consulting great philosophers. Third, God's truth is not discovered through contemplation. No mind is conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So it isn't a matter of just sitting back and musing and thinking about what is God like and what would I do if I were God. Uh, that isn't going to lead you to truth. That isn't going to get you to your final destination. And that's what Romans 1 says. Because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, but were uh, 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 glorified Him not as God, were not thankful, but became uh, vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God into an image made like corruptible beasts and birds and four-footed things. So, mankind and its reasoning and forsaking the special revelation of God has come to some pretty wild concepts of who God is, what He likes, etc., and they're wrong. Four, God's truth can only be known through His self-revelation or disclosure. 
For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. That is the Bible's answer to some degree, not in any means fully, but that addresses some of the issues of modernism and why modernists and people who hold to the Bible have real tension. Because you're not going to arrive at these things in any other way than through the Spirit. Postmodernism welcomes that kind of thinking. Postmodernism believes that there are mysteries in this world that can't be explained other than the fact that there are mysteries. And recognizes there must be some kind of high, higher power. That there must be some kind of activity of God. Certainly not the God of the Bible, but, but something bigger than you and I, as it were. Uh, postmodernism is, is very open and welcoming of that idea. But D... The only way to know what God is thinking is for God to reveal his thoughts to us. You see, this answers the question for the postmodern, how can you know what God thinks? Only God can know what he thinks. Here's the answer. Number one, no one knows the thoughts of a man but the man himself. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man? That can be written by a postmodern. That is exactly their position. Who knows the thoughts of a person other than the person himself? No one does. Sometimes we think we do. Sometimes my wife thinks she knows what I'm thinking. But rarely is she right. Okay, you can't really know. The only way to know what I'm thinking is for me to tell you. It's the only way. That's what the scripture says. That's what postmodernists say. So too... The only one who knows the thoughts of God is God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. That's very postmodern, if you will. That is very acceptable to them. That there's no way for us to know what God thinks. Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. They're, they're a world apart. So, we can't know God's thoughts unless God tells us his thoughts. Three. The only reason we can understand our fellow man is because we have the same spirit. However, we cannot go, know God unless he imparts his spirit to us. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. I'll move on and then I'll come back to that. A person who does not have the Holy Spirit cannot understand God's thoughts, for he does not value God's word. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. It is because of the impartation of the Spirit that we can understand God. 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Illustration. We can never know what a dog thinks, because we're not a dog. Okay? Uh, we can't communicate with a dog. We can guess what his dog is thinking, 
If he's growling, he's probably not too happy. And we can guess, perhaps, why he's unhappy. But we don't really know what a dog is thinking. We gave our dog away, praise the Lord. But, but while he was at the Reed residence, he would lay under a tree. What did he think about all day? Did he daydream? Did he contemplate how better it would have been to have a different master? What, what, what did he think? It's impossible for us to know because we're not a dog. The scripture says it's impossible for us to know what God thinks. Not only because he must disclose himself, just like a man must disclose himself, but, but you see, you and I are both human beings. And so you can understand what I say when I speak to you. You can relate. There's no temptation taking you but such is common to man. So that when we speak about temptations, we have them in common. We have a common experience. We have the ability to relate to one another because we've gone through those kinds of things. We'll say to each other, I understand where you're coming from. Because we've had the same thoughts. We've had the same concerns. We've had the same anxieties. We've had the same experience. But no one has had the experience of God. So scripture says, who can climb up into heaven? Who can reach into the heavens to bring God down? The answer is nobody. Nobody. We don't have God's experience. It is impossible for us to understand God. So, God has to intervene somehow. And that intervention is... The person and work of the Holy Spirit. He imparts to us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand God. So that we can understand truth. If you look back on page 1, under B, I skipped two verses there. Page 1B, John 16, 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes... Interesting title of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth. The Spirit that speaks and reveals truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. John 16, 14. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So the Holy Spirit enables us to understand God's truth. And without that Holy Spirit working in our lives, the Scripture says... It's incomprehensible to us. It doesn't make sense. We don't value it. We don't appraise it. We don't see it for uh, the value that it possesses. To us, it becomes foolishness. I love the translation of the NAS for that particular verse when it says, uh, for they are spiritually appraised. Uh, After my dad died, There were a lot of things in our home that uh, were his and family heirlooms. And one of the things we tried to ascertain is what was old and junk and what were antiques and of value. So we got an appraiser in to look around. And he told us what was of value. 
And what was it? I was really surprised. Some of the stuff I thought was junk was really of value. And some of the stuff that I thought was of value really was junk. Uh, but uh, he revealed to us what was of value and what wasn't. The Holy Spirit reveals to us what is of value and what isn't. What is truth and what isn't. It, it, he enables us to understand the mind of God. That is a very helpful postmodern uh, answer. Two. What if we are not hopelessly dependent upon words to understand the truth? You see, one of the things that postmodernism says is that, that truth is not objective, it is subjective. It's not out there, but it's in here. And one of the reasons is because the only way that we have to talk about truth are words. Words are the only instrument we have. If we're going to define a word, we have to use other words to define it. Remember, I used the example of the green tree. And we may say, look, there's a green tree, but how do I know that the tree you see is the tree that I see? How do I know that the green you see is the green that I see? We have to talk about it. We have to discuss it. And all we have is words. Number two, but what if the word of God became alive? What if the truth of Scripture could be fleshed out? Remember, postmodernism said there is no escape from the hermeneutical circle, none whatsoever. As for words, not only is their meaning constrained by other words, but words are viciously self-limiting in the strongest form of deconstruction. Not only is all meaning bound up irretrievably with a knower rather than with a text, but words themselves never have reference other than other words, even then with an emphasis on iron, irony and ambiguity. Over to the top of page four. We are not hopelessly dependent upon words to explain words without any outside reference. We have the word becoming flesh. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.14, and the word was made flesh. I'm sure you've heard... What goes around comes around. And there are elements of Gnosticism, Gnosticism, that uh, Greek philosophy, uh, you've probably heard the term Gnostic, uh, it comes from the Greek word gnosko, which is the word to know. Gnosticism is about knowing and how you know. And there are a lot of elements in postmodernism that are found all the way back into the Gnosticism of the New Testament era. It's one of the reasons why the Bible speaks to those same kinds of issues, because they were present back there. And that is why Jesus Christ is referred to as the Logos, Greek word for word. He is the fleshing out of the word of God. He is the personal Revelation of all that God teaches us in His Word. So that A, in the Word becoming flesh, we have God the Father perfectly revealed to us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets 
many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So, we have Jesus, who be, in becoming flesh, we have the word perfectly lived before us. Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king, to this end was I born, and for this cause came out into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. I came to teach the truth. I came to live the truth. You want to see truth. You see it in me. We see in Jesus' life and actions how we are to live a Christian life. We're not just simply instructed about the Christian life. We have the example of the Christian life. We have more than words referring to words. We have the Word coming to life in the person of Jesus Christ. We aren't limited to just talking about the Word of God. We're able to see the Word of God objectively. And those elements are found in the Gospel of John. That's one of the reasons Jesus is referred to as the Word. The Word. Because Gnostics wrestled with those very same issues. So that Christianity really does address the concerns of postmodernism and does so in a rather, rather powerful way. Uh, I've got five minutes by my watch. Uh, I'm going to stop there. Anybody have any questions that would be helpful to bring about uh, some clarity where it may be a little obscure at the moment. Anybody have any questions you want to ask? Comments you want to make? Observations you want to give? Yes, Ron. Does it have any bearing on this? Uh, to some degree, to some degree, because Jesus was teaching that, that the kingdom is not just external, it is that. He's going to come and reign. But uh, it begins by his reign in our hearts. It begin, uh, what I would uh, say probably that would have a, a, a more clear reference would be Jesus to Nicodemus. Saying, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Not only can you not enter it, uh, you can't even see, you can't even know it. You can't, you can't experience it. Uh, without being born again, you don't get it. You've got to be born again in order to really understand biblical truth. And we need to understand that. Because in the modernist era, there has been a great emphasis on the idea that, that soul winning is going to come through persuading the non-believer that what they held to was wrong. Well, remember Jesus, uh, Paul on the trial 
And uh, I think it was Felix that said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Didn't persuade him, but almost. You can't persuade a non-Christian from becoming a Christian. It requires the work of God. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can't argue somebody in the kingdom. You can't come up with a good enough uh, defense. Yeah, it's not going to happen that way. Uh, that's important to keep in mind. Um, Billy Graham's magazine. Uh, do you remember that magazine? Do you remember what it's called? Decision Magazine. Decision Magazine. Because that's what salvation was seen as being. It's a decision. Either you decide to accept or you decide to reject Christ. And it's seen as being primarily an intellectual response to the gospel. You're forced with making a decision. Well, it's much more than that. Uh, faith is a gift. Uh, it's God's opening our hearts and minds to understand and embrace and receive that truth. And without the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, we will never embrace that truth. You see, that's a part of our Reformed thinking. That's a part of our, of our doctrine. That really becomes understandable in postmodernism in a way in which modernists, that hasn't been particularly a friendly issue to. But it's much more than just an academic process. And there have always been those theologians, such as Cornelius Van Til, uh, for one of them, very well-known apologist, who has talked about the presuppositionalism of the Christian faith. Meaning, you've got to start with a presupposition of faith uh, if you're going to bring somebody to uh, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's got to be at work. God's got to be at work. It's not just a simple process. It's not just learning the right words. Not coming up with the right presentation, the right program. And so often in Christendom, you see, that's what it is. How do you learn to witness? Well, you better learn the right answers. You better get prepared for the right questions. And there's some degree of truth in that, to be sure, of course. But it's much more than that. Uh, it's the Spirit of God at work. And that's liberating when you understand that. Because then you don't have to have all the answers in order to witness. What you have to have is the power of the Holy Spirit. What you have to have is, is God at work in people's lives. And, uh, and they come to faith. They come to faith. Other thoughts? Comments? Issues? So, how can we know truth? Well, it requires the Holy Spirit. Because no man knows what uh, another man thinks unless the man reveals it. The Holy Spirit reveals God's truth. So next week we're going to look at inspiration. Because that's the process of God revealing his truth to the apostles. Tonight, the aspect is no ability. How can I know God's truth? I've got to have the Holy Spirit at work in my life. In other words, it's like trying to communicate it's like us trying to communicate with a dog, except we're the dog. God's thoughts are so much higher than ours. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I have so much more to tell you, but you can't bear it now. <laughs> you, 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 you just can't understand that. And a lot of it, we're not going to understand until we're in his presence. It's just so far above us. We, we just can't know. We'd love to have all the answers. 
You just can't know now. But we can know in part now because we have the Holy Spirit. But without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't know at all. It would be foolishness to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would help us as we seek to understand it to your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.